0: quite a pinnacle thing so that's twice in the same season where you've had your hopes built up you've taken the team yeah. to a cup final you then left out you then oh,
1: he's, he's got it hang about he's got a hat-trick ball Rafa he's done so he did something else as well so he left me out of um, a squad against Tottenham we were playing Spurs at home and I can't remember it was the season we won the Champions League or the season after and we were playing on the Saturday three o'clock kickoff, and I wasn't in the squad
0: Welcome to the Prime Life Project Podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Life Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James, and this is the second time we've recorded this because I forgot to press lay. So. <laughs> the amount of people listening to this, uh, the podcast from the very beginning, I've always joked about what if I don't actually press play, and it turns out I've got a massive guest on today uh, that I'm very much looking forward to speaking with. Uh, he's a former professional footballer that's played for uh, the team that I support. So this is going to be an awesome episode with the information he's going to give, because being a former professional footballer, you think that, you know, you've got the life together, like living the dream, but that hasn't been the case, and what we're going to go into today is going to be absolutely awesome, but I just couldn't believe that I forgot to press record. So... <laughs> I've got The gentleman I've got with me today is Stephen Warnock, who is a former professional footballer who's made over 450 appearances for Liverpool, Aston Villa, Blackburn and Leeds United, playing in the Champions League as well as representing England and going to the World Cup finals in South Africa. He's now a regular football pundit on both TV and radio and works for Sky, BT and the BBC. For the second time, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me on. <laughs> record. That annoying little voice in Zoom said in recording. So I hope hope so. Uh, if okay. not, I'll just, blame, I'll just blame Mikey. I blame Mikey for everything else that goes wrong. But I'll take full responsibility this time. So, Stephen, take me back to what life was like for you growing up. Because um, you started playing football at a very, very young age for Liverpool. So yeah. Liverpool's a massive, massive club. There must have been a lot of pressure on you from such a young age. Can you just sort of take my audience back to what life was like there and was going to slowly transition through your football career to sort of where your life is now? But can we just talk about football growing up and what it was like for you?
1: Uh, well, even before Liverpool, I'd probably say I uh, played for my my local teams in and around the area, but I was always one of these players where my brother played for the local team, which was uh, called Rufford Colts. And they didn't have an age group which was available for me to play in. So I played a year up um, and played with lads who were older than me. And it was very good. I loved playing uh, Saturday, Sunday every week. And then um, as as I got a little bit older, got to the age of sort of 10 years old and uh, a guy from the area sort of put together the the elite of the league, if you like, and said, right, we're going to play against Everton, Liverpool, Manchester United and whoever in the area. So we went and played against Everton. I got picked up by Everton initially to go on trial. They asked me to to come on trial and I I agreed to it. And then we played Liverpool a couple of weeks later and uh, scored a few goals, played well in the game and nothing came of it until (laughs) I got to McDonald's on the way home uh, with the team. And the coach of the the team came in and said, we tried to get hold of you after the game with your parents and, and have a chat, but we'd like you to come in and have a trial. And I literally went for a trial, and as they say, the, the rest was history. But my my background was I was a Liverpool fan. Uh, I grew up standing on the cop um, from my my mum and dad are split. My mum and dad, my mum's are red, my dad's a blue. Oh dear.
2: My, brother, my
1: brothers are blue, <laughs> I'm a red. Um, and my granddad was my, both my granddads were red and blues as well. So it was very much a, a split family. But um, as a, as a kid, my my dad had season tickets through work for Everton. Um, my brother, me and my brother and my dad used to go to quite a lot of Everton games to watch them. But when I went to Anfield, I just got hooked, uh, stood on the cop and, and that was me done then.
0: It's kind of like my family. So my dad's a Villa fan, uh, but then on my other, but I've got three younger brothers. They're all Arsenal fans for no other reason than growing up. That was when they had the elite team with Thierry Henry and all them lot, but I've been God, yeah. through and through, but uh Interesting. I've heard you say before about when you actually were at Liverpool that you felt like a massive outsider because you weren't a true Liverpoolian. Is that true? Like, yeah. where are we, Whereabouts are you actually from? And how, from such a young age, did that affect you? Because going into a changing room where, again, you are playing the elite of that age group for a massive club, you kind of expect there to be some sort of standards. But from yeah. what I've heard, it sounded like it was a pretty rough time
1: for you back then. Yeah, only looking back on it, I think there was times where I would fear going into, like not fear going into training, but I didn't look forward to it because I'm from Ormskirk, which is actually Lancashire. It's 12 miles outside of Liverpool, roughly. Um, It's actually the border of Merseyside, probably (laughs) two miles away. But to get to the city centre, it's like 12 miles. My mum and dad are both from the heart of Liverpool. They're both from Bootle. So for me, I I grew up with a, a Scouse upbringing. But I was always, you're born in Ormskirk. You go to school in Ormskirk. You don't sound like a scouser. Um, I was probably, yeah, I was the only one in the team who was from out of Liverpool. So I turn up with a, a strange accent that the lads aren't used to. They don't really get. Um, and they, a lot of the, the lads would have played together for, for Liverpool schoolboys, Sefton schoolboys, uh, in and around the area, whereas I was West Lancashire. So I never got to see the players outside of it, whereas they, a lot of them went to school together as well and, and mixed outside of, of football. So whenever I went into to training, I always felt that I, I was coming in a little bit different. Um, and yeah, I, I never felt really that comfortable. Um, being Do you, you, be like, you
0: have to work harder to try and prove a point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, to be accepted, you had to prove that you were... Arguably one of the best players um, or the hardest working player, whichever one it was. But I just tended to go in, do my training, keep my head down uh, and go. Mm. At what age did
0: you kind of know that you were going to be a pro? Because again, from I know it's slightly different from when you were growing up, but nowadays it's so cutthroat and you hear a lot of things now about players being released from academies and then committing suicide. It's a real yeah. problem that academies are having. So at what age did you kind of know, actually, I've got a chance here, or was it just one day, oh yeah, by the way, you're training with the reserves or you're with the first team, or were you kind of touted from early on as we're kind of grooming you for the first team?
1: Yeah, I I think I realised in and around the age of 14 and 15 that I had potential because I was getting selected for England schoolboys. And I got offered a place at the National School at Lillashore at the age of 14, but actually turned it down. I wasn't ready to leave home. Um, It was something that I look back on now and wish I'd have done. But I was young. I was probably a little bit homesick. I thought I would have been homesick going there. And... um, Officially, I never got offered the the position, but they offered me it when I went to the final try And said, listen, the place is yours. What's your thoughts? And I was like, I'm not so sure. I mm. uh, don't think I can do it. So that was that was probably when I knew you're in that elite group of sort of 20 players to 25 players in the country. I was playing with the likes of Joe Cole mm. um, in my age group, who was also obviously Joe went on to have an incredible career. But we were we were we were such a good age group at that time that I was thinking, well, if I'm in and around this age group and the standard of players, then I must be OK. Uh, I had clubs constantly interested in me, uh, wanting to take me. So that was where I was thinking, yeah, you've, you've got an opportunity here. But then obviously when you get to the final year in school and you're talking about YTS um, scholarship forms, what it is now, then you know that you've got a, a decent chance of making it
0: did you have any friends of yours that didn't make it and then went on to struggle with the mental health that you're aware of so i know it's a i know it's a little bit different it's a lot more cutthroat nowadays um but back in your day was it still something that's quite prevalent that you now looking back on retrospectively you were like well actually my mate dave actually struggled quite a bit actually when you left or was it not something that we really spoke I'd say,
1: about i'd say it was even more cutthroat back then okay because you didn't you didn't have the support systems you didn't have um people to go and talk to it, there wasn't that that sort of care side to things now that was that's probably been put in place i think clubs are, are massively staffed now at academy levels whereas we weren't we had our first team coach we had our coaches at each at each age group but we had one coach each whereas now there's probably three four and five coaches for each age group there's always someone to talk to and I think the biggest thing that I noticed in, in my age groups when when players were released was you you very rarely heard from them again and there wasn't this um this support network behind to try and help you move on. It was just you haven't made it. Mm. You just that's part and parcel of it. Um, my friend actually wrote a book. About it, called uh, Michael Owen, Stephen Gerrard, and me—I think it is—or whichever way the wording goes—and he was a young player f- from the next village down from me in Bursko. and he was touted as one of the next big things. He played up front with Michael Owen; they were formidable goal scorers, the both the pair of them, at the age of fourteen and fifteen. And then, for whatever reason, whether it was the pressure of not being able to make it uh, to make it, or just not progressing to the level that Michael and Stephen did, he fell away from the game and ended up going to dundee then he moved then he played for bursco locally he's now an academy coach at Liverpool, but his book is something that any academy player should read mm. um, and I, and I always advocate it to say that if you're a parent of an academy player, you have to read this book because it tells you the pitfalls of what might happen uh, I don't think many Many clubs necessarily sit down with the players and say to them, I hope you realise that maybe one out of this room of 30 will make it, but probably none of them will. Mm. Mm. I don't think that's ever ever really told properly. And I think the, the parents often sit there or the players do and go, well, I'll be that one.
0: I think it's also because of the level, especially if you're talking your Liverpools, your Man Citys, your Villas, yeah. Premier League academies, it's not real football. It's very much you are passing around. It's a bit lardy dary. You then can't go from that to almost playing in League Two, because you get your head kicked in. It's like it's a very different level of football. If that makes sense. So once you leave yeah. the academy, I think some of them also struggle to readjust to go back to real football. Does that make sense? What I'm saying with that? It's, well, it's I, I, I don't
1: think it's the I don't think it's the football side of it. It's the lifestyle and it's the. So I went on loan to Bradford, and I remember going to Bradford. And I turned up on loan and I was, I think I was about 18 or 19. I'd just come back off the back of, uh, I brought my leg like three times. So this was an opportunity for me to, to get fit, to show that I could, in my own head that I can play at that level. But the first day I trained, turned up to train at Bradford, I got to the, the ground and got changed. And then they said, well, now you jump in your own car and you drive to the train, training <laughs> ground, which is a local field got to this local field and there was a fella walking his dog and his dog had a shit in the middle of the pitch. <laughs> and I was yeah. thinking, well, you don't get that at Liverpool.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and then it was always about the training kit. Uh, what, what pieces of training kit have you used? We can only wash so much. We can only do so much. And then you go back to the ground covered in crap, like from muddy pitches, getting in your car, which is filthy, stinking. And it's this acclimatization that people don't get. They don't get the the difference between playing for a top top team, and how clubs have to save money going down. Mm. And that's something that they can't take um, because they come so accustomed to it from the ages of say nine to, to to eighteen. Is that they can't accept that they have to drop to that level to deal with it. And I remember early on in my in, when I was at Bradford, it was it was the perfect club for me to go to. I had senior figures like Peter Aberton, Ashley Ward, Jamie Lawrence, David Weatherall. These are players who were season pros. And what it taught me was they were in a, uh, they'd just come out of administration. These guys were on the brink of not being paid. They were fighting to stay within the championship. People had people up against the walls because they had mortgages to pay, they had bills to pay. And I was thinking, this is the real world. I never I never worried about anything like that at Liverpool. Didn't have to 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 worry one bit about anything like that. So um I only I only stayed for three months at Bradford because I got I got injured, uh, came back and but that was the grounding I needed. That was the biggest eye opener for me to go, I don't want to stay at that level. I wanna and it wasn't being disrespectful, yeah. it was just I knew what I knew what the other side of it was, and I don't think many of those players did and what it was like.
0: Because there's a lot of complacency, I think. Like, again, when you're with these academy players, you're kind of made to seem like you are... Because, again, you are you, you are the elite of that age group. But as yeah. you said, you're fighting for a select few places, but you realise, fuck, actually, I've got to work quite hard here because I don't want to go down to that level or lower because yeah. that's what life's like. I'll say, I didn't know that. I think it's fascinating. It's, so when you got injured at that time, is because I've heard you say the story about when you got the wake-up call uh, at the pub. So you broke your leg yeah. one of the times. Uh, you were spending your money uh, you, the, the insurance money that you got, uh, you're quite out of shape at a pub yeah. and, and a guy called you out and you said it was the wake up call that you needed. Uh, can you, yeah. can, you, can you share that story? Cause that's quite a fascinating story because again, we talk about footballers nowadays, 18, 19 years old. They're not taught how to spend all this money. You again, rightly So you break your leg, clean on a good headspace and you're pissing up all this money, at, but no one seemed to grab you and be like, what the fuck are you doing?
1: Like, yeah, that must've, that was quite worrying. Yeah, it was because I was I was ten I mean, I got I got I got a payout. It wasn't mega money, but it was like say six or seven thousand pounds, which is for a 17, a seventeen, eighteen year old kid who's just broke his leg, that's a lot of money. Mm. Um, who was on sixty-four pounds a week, roughly. <laughs> yeah. So suddenly I'd won the lottery. Do you know what I mean? And I was thinking, well, I'm just I, I was in a really tough place at the time. I think it was the second time I broke my leg and I was just thinking. Where'd you go from here? Because I knew how hard it, uh, the work was to get back the first time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I knew it was going to be doubly hard the second time. So um, yeah, I just hit a massive lull and was was out drinking all the time uh, during the week as well. And um, yeah, one of it was one of my like my school friends, old school mates, and he's quite uh, he's quite forward. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And he just said like, "What are you doing? Like, you, you're out with shape." You've got the opportunity of your lifetime. You're overweight. And I literally stood there and thought that was the first person that had said it. Because everyone, even now, like academy players, it's almost like you can't say anything to them because they think, well, I don't need you anyway. Whereas I actually appreciated it and went, I literally put my drink down and went, I'm going home. Mm.
2: Because
1: it just hit me. I don't know how. It just literally hit me between the eyes. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I
0: think that's the thing nowadays. This is why I said, "Why well, I like Mikey so much. You can't surround yourself with yes men. And it's got nothing to yeah. do with football. And again, when we go into Stephen's story, like let's go further on, this isn't about football. This is about life lessons. And this is what I enjoyed by you, Stephen, listening to when you're talking with Paul. So uh, Paul Cope, former guest, uh, he's the, the connection here. Uh, the conversation you guys were having, yes, it was about football, but it was just such deep life lessons. So straight away there, people in your life, you need to have someone that can have these honest conversations with you, and you don't take it personally. Too many people nowadays take things personally. So, imagine if you'd have turned around to him and said, Who the fuck are you to tell me this? I'm a footballer. Yeah. Fuck you. You carried on drinking before you know it. You're then released. Like, it's amazing the fact that even at that young age, just something in you was like, This person's trying to help me. Yeah. Fair fucking, fair fucking point. Crack on. I think that's absolutely yeah. awesome. So, yeah. life lesson for people right there. Now, I just want to fast forward a little bit now. So, we're now in the 2004, 2005 season when you're at Liverpool. And I've got a quote here from you saying, On a personal level, the Carling Cup and Champions League finals stand out as particular low points for me. i would played every round of the League Cup before the final and missed out on a medal. Then when I wasn't in the squad for the European Cup final, I'd have to say it was the lowest point of all. So context, you played every single game of this League Cup competition. Liverpool then get into the final against Chelsea. You are not in the squad at all. They end up losing 3-2. Gerald scores scores an own goal. Uh, And you don't get a medal. Not even everyone has a medal. Then you get the Champions League, which for a player, apart from international duty, the Champions League is the creme de la creme. You played in a few group games, you played in the quarterfinal, and can you then explain the story of how you actually? I've I've heard this on another podcast about what happened, and I've actually shared it. the The owner of the gym I'm at is a Liverpool fan, and I actually shared this story with him. Can you share the story of how you actually found out that you weren't in the Champions League um, team uh, squad?
1: Yeah. So um, usually after the the last game of the season, you have two-week period, where uh, the Champions League games two weeks after the final game. So we had training for two weeks. Uh, everyone was training hard, which is obviously trying to push themselves into the squad for the final. There was probably 30-odd players to get into the squad of, of 18. And I'd, I'd played a lot of games that season. Um, I was quite a, an, I wouldn't say an important player, but I was, I was used a lot within that season. And um, we were travelling to Istanbul two or three days before the final. And the squad list went up after the final trading session in Liverpool, and my name was on the board, and I'd made the 18. So I was showered as quick as I could, out into the car, rang the family, book your ticket, get yourself there. I'll sort the the, the match tickets out. So uh, everyone's sort of celebrating because you're thinking, well, biggest game in in club football, and you're part of it, which was an incredible thing. And probably two or three hours later, I just got a phone call from. Uh, Paco Ayestarán, who is Rafa Benitez's number two. Uh, apologies, we've made a, an, an error on the squad list. Um, you're not in the squad anymore. And the the rumor has it, and where it's come from, I'm not going to disclose. No. Uh, it's not a rumor, um, <laughs> but one of the players, the Spanish players who've been out for the full season and played the last game of the season, uh, went up and complained. And they made the decision to take me out the squad and, and put him in it. And uh, I didn't get an apology from from Rafa. I didn't get a phone call from him. And my feeling towards the, the club and, and Rafa just sort of disintegrated then. And I was really, really frustrated.
0: How did that affect your self-confidence and self-worth as a player? Like Because when it comes to what's happened further on down the line, that's a quite a pinnacle thing. So that's twice in the same season where you've had your hopes built up. You've taken the team yeah. to a cup final. You then left out. You then oh,
1: he's, he's got it. Hang about. He's got a hat trick, ball Rafa. He's done so. <laughs> he did something else as well. So he left me out of um, a squad against Tottenham. We were playing Spurs at home, and I can't remember it was the season we won the Champions League or the season after. And we were playing on the Saturday, three o'clock kickoff, and I wasn't in the squad. And it was um, it was my friend's birthday. And we were in training the next morning. I think we were in at like 10 or 11 o'clock. And I went out the night before and had a few drinks. had a whatever. I was probably half cut, turned up for training, which wasn't great, but I was pissed off that I wasn't in the squad. Uh, I sound like an alcoholic here, but I'm not. (laughs) And when I got into training, I was putting my training kit on and I was sat on the bench ready to go out. And Rafa came down the stairs from his office and he was like, where are you going? So I was like, out to train? And he was like, you're playing today? And I was like, no, I'm not. I said, the squad list's in there. Go and check it. So I walked into the changing room with him. No, we make a mistake. He says, you start today. So I remember he walked out the changing room and I thought, I've got a decision to make here. I either tell him I was out last night or I keep quiet. But if I keep quiet, I'm in no fit state to, well, I wasn't, I wasn't hammered. I'd have played and I'd have been fine. But, but I would not have done myself justice. Yeah. 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 So uh I walked up to the office and I said to him, Listen, I went out for a few drinks last night. And he was like, Well, that's unprofessional. And I went, Oh, so putting the wrong name up on the board's not professional. And you've done that before to me. Um, because there'd been other incidences as well. <laughs> anyway, he put me on the bench and uh, I came on with about 30 minutes to go, 20 minutes to go in the game. So, there have been norm, numerous occasions with Rafa where he got things wrong or his staff had got things wrong. So, yeah.
0: But on a personal level for you, how did that affect your confidence as a player? Did did you, did you know your self worth? Was it a case of, fuck you, I know that I'm good enough, you made a mistake here? Or did it knock, knock your confidence, play on your mind a little bit that somehow he didn't? Yeah, good not my
1: confidence, not my confidence massively. It, it showed me he had no respect for me as well. Um, especially the Istanbul incident not even to, to come me and have have the bollocks to do it yourself yeah if you're the boss of a company and you've got a big call to make you make the call yeah do that have have respect for who you're who you're talking to because if he'd have done that and rang me listen I'd have still been pissed off but I'd have mm. gone well at least he at least he rang me yeah um, and had the bottle to do that so that was that was that and my decision over the summer was I wanted out, yeah. um, and then, if you don't mind me going on a little, no, bit, no, no, it, no, no. It, it got to the summer, and I'd been linked with a move to Blackburn, and Lucas Neal was coming the other way, and everything had been agreed. I was in the car on the way to uh, Blackburn, and this was it was the the, the final day of the transfer window. It was probably four or five o'clock in the eve in the in the afternoon. And I think the transfer window shut around about eleven or twelve o'clock. I can't remember what time. And I was, I got to, um, I got to the service station halfway down to Blackburn. Got a phone call. Pull over. Uh, Liverpool don't want you to go. And I was like, well, where's this come from? Don't know, but it's come from, come from the top. You're not going. All right, fair enough. I'm, they must want me. So go back in the next day and I'm sat in the treatment room where lads used to congregate really. And I think we'd signed a couple of players possibly. And um, I was just sat there and Rafa walked in. What are you doing here?
0: <laughs> Fucking hell.
1: And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, I thought you were going to Blackburn. So said, I got a phone call to turn round. Not from me. Fucking and hell. it had come from Rick Parry and the owner. They didn't want a young player who'd been in the England squad and things like that to leave they didn't think I'd been given a fair crack of the whip but they hadn't understood what had gone on behind the scenes as well and how pissed off I was so I literally walked out the changing room told him to fuck off basically and how angry I was I walked into the changing room and I rang my agent straight away and I went get me out of here and he, I told him what had gone on and um yeah we found out then that it had come from from Rick Parry and Mr Moore's the owner, and um yeah, I was furious if i'm being honest yeah. so uh got to the point in I, d- I didn't really play much for the rest of this, the uh, or the half of the season until I, uh, I I got my move to, to Blackburn in the January, and thankfully they hadn't signed anyone in the meantime and and they kept kept hold of me.
0: Because then from Blackburn, you then ended up at my club, Aston Villa. Uh, and again, yeah. this is something where I was doing my research in. And again, it's fascinating because this is a bizarre thing for me with this. like, Because I remember playing computer games and I remember playing with you as a left back on the computer games. So this for me is bizarre. And uh, understanding what in was doing my research into, and understanding what the manager said is, is, is fantastic. So then thing go to Villa. You started off, I think you started off the season, uh, the first season you played. And then uh, Gerard Houllier came in at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then he forced you to play the reserves. Um I've got, I've got quite a few follow on questions from this. So you're there, top of your game, and a new manager comes in, he then puts you in the reserves. Uh, then a new manager comes in after that, replaces Gerald Houdet. So Alex McLeish comes in, and he then says that he's impressed with your phenomenal attitude. And then you ended up playing every single game that season under Alex McLeish. Uh, yeah, I think you missed three. So my question with this is, how mentally did you keep an impressive attitude when you've been relegated to the reserves? Because you see it nowadays, you get people like Ross Barclays, just to name one person, that end up going to the reserve of a team, they rot there, and that's it. Their head rolls off, they think, fuck this, I'm just gonna take my paycheck, not fucking bothered, I'm a knockdown to go to the championship, I'm done here. How did you keep such a good attitude that Alex McLeish came in, pinpointed you and said, I'm impressed with you, your attitude's amazing, straight back into the team you go. How did you do that? Because that shows a shit ton of resilience
1: yeah, to a certain degree, but it also comes from good management. And Villa fans will probably be very surprised at me saying that because, but the way he handled my situation was brilliant. The situation with Gerard Houllier as well, like near enough finished my career. In the fact of when he came in, I play for England against France in the November, and by December, he put me in the reserve team dressing room off the back of a mistake he made. So I don't know whether you know the story. No, no, I
0: I don't at all. I don't at all.
1: So I I lived in the Northwest and I was commuting up and down, but I'd stay two, three nights a week in Birmingham because we were never in under Martin O'Neill. And I mean, literally hardly ever in the training ground. It was the way he trained. He'd have us in two, three times a week. So I just used to stay over um, and left my family back home. And when Gerard Houllier came in, he said to me, you need to move to... To Birmingham, and I said, Okay, well, I'll move in January when the kids and stuff can move, but I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing. I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with it, whatever. And he turned around and he said, Okay, well, when we play in the Northwest, you don't have to ask me if you can go home because Emil Heskey and Brad Friedel also lived in the Northwest. And he said, You three can just you do what you need to do. Fair enough. So we play Manchester City in a game. And we got beat 4 1 in the game, I think it was. After the game, uh, I don't know whether there was a, a couple of days off or something. So, myself, Brad, and Emil, we go. But about four, other, four or five other players just leave as well, but they don't ask for his permission. So, on the Monday, he comes into training and uh, he gets everyone in the group and he goes, um, You all owe me an apology. Brad, Emil, you can go. So, I'm stood there thinking, well, why can't I go? And uh, he says, uh, so the the player's like, oh, sorry, I apologize. He says to me, um, why aren't you apologizing? So I was like, what for? I said, you told me that I didn't need, to... I did not say this. And I was like, yes, you did. Are you calling me a liar? So I went, yeah, I am. I said, you pulled me in and spoke to me about it, about my situation. And he would not have it. And I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. So anyway, he goes, go and train, go and train. So I went and trained. And the next day I came in. And at Villa, we used to have, uh, it's all changed now, I think. But we used to have our lockers with our names on. And I came in the next day. And I literally opened the door. And my my locker was opposite. And my name was off the the board on my locker. And the kit man went, Stevie, I'm so sorry. But he's told me to put you in the 20 on like the reserve team changing room. So I was like, why? And he was like, I don't know. So I went and knocked on his on his office door and he said, uh, you've disrespected me. Uh, you need to apologize. And I was like, I'm not apologizing for something that I've not done. And um, he basically said, Well, that's you done then. I went, Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm not having it. Um, so I I think that was like November, December time. And then come January, Kenny uh, Kenny Dalglish was manager at Liverpool. And Kenny asked me to go back to Liverpool. And they rang Villa, made a formal approach. Gary McAllister pulled me on the training ground said to me, listen, it's a good move for you. We think it's right. You need to leave and whatever. And I was like, yeah, okay. Ready to go home and and sort everything out. And uh, next day came in. Deals off, Villa suddenly wanted over half a million pound loan fee for me, and it was just hugely been awkward. Yeah. And I know it was, and it was almost like we couldn't point. accept, yeah, that I was going back to our previous club, and I was getting the opportunity to to still play Premier League. He wanted to make me rot,
2: yeah,
1: um, and then he he obviously had his illness in the uh, towards the end of the season, and Alex McLeish. Rang, uh, called. He called me, and someone from the club called my agent and just said, Don't want him to leave. Clean slate when he comes back, and he's hugely important to me. And I just went, Great, that's what I want to hear. So that, that pre that, that off season, I got myself so fit and came back and just absolutely attacked pre season. And I'd, I'd challenge you to find anyone who says my attitude to training or my commitment to football was not unbelievable because I know it.
0: I've seen that when I did research into you about your tackling and training, or like you literally took training as seriously as games. So yeah, I actually absolutely. saw that. And yeah. yeah. But, but but this is the thing that I want to get out of this, this specific Villa story, not purely because I'm a Villa fan. It was, it's purely your mentality of how to overcome that because a lot of people, and I said this on my last uh, podcast, have a victim mentality. So. Yeah. And, and, and that's it, that they'll crumble. But you seem to have done, which is my attitude, fuck you. But I'm going to come yeah. back so unbelievably fucking fit that you're going to have to play me and you've got no choice. And yeah. well, I, I think that that's the attitude you're
1: going to have. Yeah, that, that was my attitude. And that was what I was desperate to do and to prove to people, like the fans at Villa, uh, I wanted to try and get back into the England squad. There was, there was so many things that I wanted to, to try and achieve. Um, but then I did that and there were situations at the end of the season where Stillian got ill, uh, Petrov, and we all know the story with Stillian and, and what went on. And I was handed the captaincy off the back of it to take over. And more often than not, I'd hold meetings within the training ground because we were having a tough time. We were down the bottom of the league and we yes. were struggling. And Randy Lerner rang me probably twice a week uh, towards the end of the season, probably for a month or two, thanking me for my effort in the training grounds, for everything that I was trying to do for the players, because I was putting, I, I was trying to, to to do as much as I could to help us going to, to prevent us going down, trying to put extra training sessions on for the players, speaking to the management and, and telling them what we what what the players were feeling, and um, he basically turned around and and said to me. Like, will we reward you with a new contract when we stayed up? So I, I walked away from the end of that season thinking, like, made up. I was really proud of myself, I'm not going to lie, mm. because to go and fill Stillian's boots, and I'm not saying I filled them, but So you, you stepped
0: up, you stepped up. Yeah,
1: he's, he, Stillian's an amazing guy, an amazing captain, and a person around the training ground who I tried to, not copy, but emulate and take the best things that he used to do. And I tried to make that transition into captaincy at Villa like I was just doing what Stan would do and that was yeah. what I tried to do for the players and to get the feedback from the owner I was really pleased and proud and thought well, yeah you've done well there you've done what you wanted to do you've achieved safety and people might say well that's not an achievement for Aston Villa but it was we were in it a was then. Yeah, yeah, Um, and then Alex McLeish leaves his position. I was on holiday. I was in America. I was on a cruise in America, and I got a phone call from my agent saying uh, Paul Lambert's being appointed and doesn't want you. So I'd gone from the owner telling me that he wanted that he wanted to give me a new contract to being told I wasn't wanted. And I thought I'd played a lot of that season. I don't know if you remember, but I played probably the second half of the season as a centre midfielder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because we had obviously still being injured and we had a lot of injuries in that position. So I, uh, I played out of position. I thought, no, I'm going to come back and show you I'm a left back and I've played for England. I don't play for England for no reason. You haven't seen me play in that position. So you don't know what my attitude's like. And I came back and I was, again, I was the fittest player. Um, Paul Lambert turned round publicly in front of the squad and said like, you need to take a look at his attitude He's got the best attitude every day when he comes into training. Singled me out for it. And I thought, I'm winning him over here. Um, We went out to America and played played three or four games. I played really well in all the games. And I thought, I'm back in here. Came back. We played Nottingham Forest on a Friday night. Everyone was jet lagged. Everyone was knackered. I played not great. And I know it, but it was preseason. But I thought, just keep running. Get through it. You'll be fine came into training the next day and I got called into the office and he just sat me down and he went, uh, that's you done. And I yeah. went, what? And he went, that's you done. You're with the reserves now for the rest of the season. And I was like, you're fucking serious. And he was like, yeah. And I went, "What well, for what reason? And he went, I'm the manager of the football club. I don't have to give you a reason. And I thought, what a cop out. So again, My confidence had gone from being sky high to absolutely nosedive and thinking, fucking hell, it's happened again. And I'm thinking, this is incredible. Now, without going into it too much, I know it was like financial reasons. I was on a a half-decent contract, nowhere near what people are on now. But there was not only myself, there was a few other players, Alan Hutton, Stephen yep. Ireland we yep. all got pushed out yeah and it was just like
0: i i i incredible. remember that i remember that time of villa exactly what you said about being in the rook because i think one or two seasons afterwards when we got relegated in such a horrific fashion um yeah. and again i remember that i was at the game that forest game I, the, the pre-season friendly i was there so i remember thinking yeah. it was like it ended up being 3-3 we three, 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 were winning we are winning 3-1 and then they came back yeah, and yeah. We got it 3-3 um like so it's like a die hard villa fan i'm a villa fan i don't but um so with that again th- this is what we want to go with this how do you then recover from that? Because as you said, that it happened again. So didn't. So that that was at the moment at Villa. Then that yeah, I was um, fucked. So how did you yeah. carry on playing?
1: It with that, did, did did. I never ever reached the level again, because I never felt like, I never felt good enough after that. I was always waiting for the next one, and it came again. Mm. I was at I, I was at Leeds. I'd been signed by Neil Warnock. He signed me in. The January from Villa, so I had a, I had six months left on my contract. We agreed to terminate the contract. Um, went to Leeds. I was I was actually going to West Ham first. I was going on loan for six months, and the contract was basically that. I think there was thirteen games left of the season. We had to play Villa, and they said I had to play eleven of, uh, twelve of the thirteen games remaining. So I couldn't play in that Villa game. So I had to play all the games to get another an, another contract. And I thought. That's very easy for West Ham to just turn around and go. It doesn't play in the last game. Yeah, I just thought it, it, it doesn't stack in my favour whatsoever. Um, I would have backed myself to do it, but it Leeds Leeds rang me when I was on my way to uh, to West Ham and said, "We'll give you a two and a half year deal." They were in the promotion play uh, pl- uh, places at the time, or sorry, the playoff positions at the time. And um, I just thought, do you know what, Leeds is a massive club. If we can get them in the Premier League, that'd be brilliant. Um, so. I went to Leeds and in the January, and Neil Warnock left in about the April. Um, Brian McDermott came in, and it was the last game of the season. We were playing Watford away, and the, when we were leaving on the bus on the Friday, he pulled me and said, can I have a word? So I was like, yeah, yeah, no problems. And he went, um, you can find yourself a new club in the summer. And I was like, Why? And he just said, uh, I'm, I need to go younger. Um, we need to do different things and didn't really give me any any proper reason. So I just said, I've got two years left. I ain't going nowhere. I said, I'll tell you that now. I said, I'll prove you wrong. So I came back in in pre-season and he was still wanting me out and he made me captain because I proved him wrong. Fucking and I, And I played pretty much all the games. And then the new owner came into the club and the new owner wanted me out as well. Um, because when I look back on it now, I was I was captain at most clubs I was at. I was very vocal, but I, w- I wasn't afraid of being vocal for the players. Something needed doing and it didn't get done. I got frustrated like, by it because it was for the benefit of the club and the team. And sometimes I think even now, when I look back on it, you go... Sometimes things are out of your hands and you can't control them. If I'd known that now, I probably wouldn't have been as vocal. I'd have probably changed my approach to things. But um, yeah, my career was never the same after that. I always just never got to the level that I could get to because my confidence was shot. So looking back at it,
0: would you say that, because obviously uh, a bit of a spoiler alert, um, we're going to go into a second about uh, depression. Again, that's my backstory. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. So would you say at that moment with Villa that that's when your mental health really started to suffer, like depression, depressive tendencies, or was it just more of a confidence thing at that point?
1: No, I think there was, there was depression as well. So, um, this will probably surprise you as well. So we played Blackburn in the semi final of the Carling Cup at, at Villa Park and we, uh, We've made it into the final that night. I scored a goal on the night. We we won. I think it was six four on aggregate or six four on the night. I think it was. And I went back to my hotel after it with a, with my best friend, um, my uh, ex partner, and my ex wife, and her friend. And I remember after it, we were all saying, "Should we go out and have a drink and celebrate?" Not just like the four of us, but the team. And no one really wanted to go out. And I thought there, w- there, was, there was a great camaraderie amongst, amongst the players, but it, there was just something missing there. And I remember going out that night and having a few drinks. And I remember getting back to the room and I actually cried. And I remember thinking, like, because I was not enjoying it. And I was thinking, why am I so miserable? When we've just got to the final of a carabao cup and i'm playing in my my first competitive final but it it's not enough and i remember probably sat there like being dead upset and my mate was like no no it'd be fine mate you just like you just had a, a couple of drinks and things like that and i was thinking it's not that and now that i look back on it now it was depression
2: mm.
1: because of everything that had gone on previously and um even leading into, leading into coming back that year, uh, the well, it was, sorry, the year after, um, I'd, I'd obviously had that moment then, and then we went to the World Cup in the summer. Um, my auntie passed away in the in the summer when I got back from the World Cup, but my auntie was like my my second mum. She used to take me to my training. When my mum used to be, in, uh, be a nurse, so she'd work a lot of nights, and my dad was working as well. So when when they couldn't take me, my auntie had take me everywhere um and I used to spend a lot of time with them and uh she passed away, and just everything just disappeared then hunger, drive um yeah I, it, it's hard to explain, but just life just didn't seem interesting anymore, and I was just like yeah it was it was tough.
0: when you say it's hard to explain I think any person here, this of the depression Mike we Mike are as well, we know exactly what you mean. I know, yeah, I, know yeah. I know exactly what I mean. So, so I know it's weird when you say it, when you're trying to explain depression to people, it's like you, yeah. you, until you've actually gone through it, you don't get it, but I know exactly. Well,
1: I, 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 did, I didn't get it then, but I get no. it now. Yeah. When, you're, I, try, when I, you're trying I, to explain it. Yeah. It's yeah. It,
0: it, it, it's hard to articulate to someone because yeah. until you actually experience what's going on, because again, I didn't know I was depressed at the time. I had no idea. So when you no. look back and you think, how the fuck was I functioning yeah. in that headspace? So how do you think that you were functioning in that headspace? Is it because you were a family man? Is it because of the professional you were? Or is it you just thought, well, f- it's fine, I'll get over it?
1: How did you... Yeah, just that.
0: <laughs> just
1: get yeah. on with it. Uh, time. That, that, that saying, time's a healer. Bollocks. Hmm. It's not. It, it's absolutely not one bit. Like, I, I still get upset about it now. Um it's a hard, hard thing to talk about. It's it's not that. The big thing for me was is that you could I had a routine. And this is something that we'll get onto in a little bit. Yes, but that yes. was that was the difference. Was I was getting up and I knew I was going into training. So I knew my time frames during the day. I knew I'd be actively busy to keep my mind busy away from that. Now, fast forwarding on a bit when I came out the game. That was, that was the worst part of being depressed because you don't have that time frame. You wake up every day and I haven't got a job. I've got a job, but it's not to the degree of what I had before. Mm. Working in the media isn't the same time and the same dedication as to what it goes into a football club and, and being a professional athlete. So understanding how to deal with depression at different times depends on your lifestyle at that time, that point in time as well. Would you say that
0: your biggest thing with this would potentially have been grief the, grieving your auntie, but then also potentially grieving your career, the fact of yeah. you gone. I had down, a double whammy. Yeah, and then you were able to suppress it because you still had to get up, do a job, and then afterwards, because again, I remember you, again, I've got in the notes here that you look back on your career and you were very negative about it, even though you played the Champions League, paid for England, your career was fucking awesome, captained all these clubs, but you look back so negatively. Is that because you think you just suppressed, 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 suppressed so that you were not able to enjoy what was going on because you were almost grieving as you were playing, especially at Leeds? Was that kind of how think, it was? I think
1: I think there's two sides to it. I think there's that side of it there where you, you talk about the suppression and just dealing with it and getting through life, which is, which is where you lead to. But there's also the other side of it where I knew I was good enough to play higher but it, it wasn't working because of that side of it. So yeah. there was a double-edged sword where I was like, I knew I was good enough to play in the Premier League, but I couldn't get to that level again because of the suppression and what was going on. So I was beating myself up two ways. Um, and, and that's very difficult rut to get out of. And the big thing now is, is, is in football, in life at the moment, the big talking parts or are, are, are points are mental health. Can go and speak to someone. He didn't speak to someone when when you were when I was playing. Um, I had a psychologist when I was at Blackburn, but he was a sports psychologist. I don't think I'd have been overly comfortable talking to him about other things. It was more preparation for games and things like that. I don't know whether I'd have listen, it might have been different. I had a great relationship with him. I still speak to him now. Um, he probably if he listened to this, he'd probably be punching the screen saying, I wish wish you'd have come and spoke to me because he probably would have helped me. And I'm sure he would have, but it just wasn't the thing to do. Um, It wasn't until I got in a real rut when I finished playing that I I seeked help.
0: Can you talk to me about that rut? So I remember you speaking uh, to Paul about being on the motorway on the phone with your sister-in-law. And you basically said at that point that you wanted to end it all. Would you mind? Yeah talking to me about those sort of days when it got really bad?
1: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, again, when you come out of football, it's like, what do you do next? Um, where, do you, where do you go? What, what career path are you going to take? So, obviously, I went into the media and it's, it's finding a structure every day. With, with I, I, It's sort of a, an old cliche what I, I, I say about it, but being, being in football is like being in the army. You're told where to be, what time to be there, what to wear, what to eat. Um, and it's very structured in that way. And suddenly you wake up. And I was warned by, it, uh, by Michael Tong,
2: mm.
1: who I played with at Leeds. And he fell out the game for probably four or five months. And he said, I remember speaking to him about it. And he went, make sure when you retire, you've got something. And I remember thinking, joking, aren't you? Be fine. I just go and play golf every day. I'll do what I want to do, and things will be fine. And then when I did fall out of it, I was having, um, I was finding it difficult to find a structure in my life. Everything was very ad hoc. So I'm freelance, like in the media now. So I I could get a job tomorrow. I could get a phone call, or I might not have work in for two, three weeks. And it was very difficult to know again. When it was coming in and how it was coming in, so there's that sense of not feeling wanted again, and not having a not having a stable contract. Whereas at football, you go to a football club, you even know you're on a one year deal or three or four, whatever it might be. So you know where you're at and what you've got coming in. And um, I just found it very difficult to deal with. And then I started having problems with my with my marriage and things like that. And that that broke down, and I just remember thinking like This is this is tough." I was not speaking to my my children at the time um which was obviously through my fault of my own as well um but it just got to the point where i was in the car and i was like how do you get out of this like how do you actually physically get to the point where you go right this is how you get out of it i didn't have a clue literally didn't have a clue and uh it was interesting because what I, what the, the way it came about was I'd been to see another therapist, and I got to the point where I was like I felt okay, but I never felt like I was getting out of it. I just felt like I was going there and having a chat, like just not really delving into where I needed to get to. And I, and the biggest thing I wasn't getting was answers. It was you'll work it out for yourself. I couldn't work it out. I tried for a year and a half, two years, and I couldn't work it out. So when I uh, – probably six months, eight months before it, I was getting off the train in Liverpool. I'd just been to my brother's, and uh, I got the train into Liverpool. And as I was coming out, I bumped into Kopi,
2: Mm.
1: and he was like, how are you, mate? And it was 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) He was like – where are you going? It was a Monday night or a Tuesday night, something very random. And I was like, oh, I live in town. I live in Liverpool now. I've like split up my ex and whatever. And he was like, do you want to go and get a pint? So I was like, yeah, go on then. So we went and had a pint and we were just sat there and he started telling me how he'd been through similar stuff himself. And the biggest thing I, I came away from when we were sat there ch- uh, chatting was, He said, I'm not happy every day. He said, but I'm content. And he said, when you get to the place where you're content, you'll be happy every day. And I remember like sat there thinking, the fuck's he going on about? (laughs) I really did. I I remember thinking like, what's he on about there? And uh, he was telling me about what he'd been doing, how he'd been learning to be um, sort of a coach, if you like, and to help people get out of depression and things. And um, I'd obviously spoke to my sister-in-law, thought about ending it. I'd thought of other ways of ending it as well. I'd, I'd planned a, a, another way to to sort of end it and sort of get out of it, if you like. And I don't know why i just messaged him off the back of it. I don't know whether I'd been listening to a podcast of his or something. He'd done like a little podcast series. And I just thought, Last Chance to Learn. Mm. Literally that. And I thought, and uh, it was interesting because when I texted him, he didn't quite get what I was after. Um, and then when I texted him again, uh, sorry, when when we sat and spoke, we were on a Zoom like this, like this, and talking. And he said, "I've been waiting for you to text, to ring me or text me." And I was like, "Why?" And he said, "I can see it in you. When you're on TV, when you're on the radio, I can hear it." He went, "You're not happy." He said, "Your voice." doesn't sound right. He said, your body language is all wrong. Um, and I, I remember coming off that hour, maybe an hour and a half, whatever it was with him. and just thinking, I'm going to be all right. Hmm. Literally did. Cause he, cause he, uh, because he, he got it. He got it. He saw what well, other people couldn't there. see. Yeah. 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 And he'd been there. And he said to me, the, the biggest thing for me was though, he went, if you're willing to put the work in, I'll get you the answers. I'll give you the answers. He said, You don't have to find them yourself. He went, I'll give you the answers. And I remember thinking, fucking hell, I'll do. Hmm. Um, so yeah, we we sat down, we did he said to me initially, we'll we'll chat for six to eight weeks, um, and that'll be your course. And we still chat every week now. We're we're probably five, six months on, um, because he he, he helps me so much.
0: Can you? Try and summarise. And again, I, I don't expect you to go into massive amounts of detail because it's your real, real personal stuff. How has Paul helped you so much? Because obviously, as we spoke off air, when he came onto the podcast, he blew my fucking mind. He's blown yeah. Mikey's mind. He blew my, like, my, my audience. Out of all the podcasts I've ever done. That's the one that people have said, fucking hell, that Paul. You've actually worked with him. And you're yeah. saying that you were literally thinking of ending it. That's how low you were. What has Paul done to give you that contentment?
1: Um, an understanding of, of why things happen and how to, how to, to deal with situations. Um, we often tell ourselves narratives in our heads. Every single day we tell ourselves a story. If someone's not text you back in a certain time, if someone's not rang you, it's the worst feeling ever. It's that, well, I'm, I'm not important again, or we, we believe that they don't, they're not interested in us. You, you, When you text someone, I always think of this. If I was to text someone now, it doesn't mean that they pick up the phone instantly and go, I'm going to start a text conversation here. Their phone might not even be on them. They might be in a gym, and they're upstairs doing a spin class or running, and the phone's downstairs. But you're wanting this instant response, this instant craving of attention, and you don't get it. And it's the same with anything. So I tell myself, they're not not answering me. Why aren't they answering me? So you start to tell yourself these stories in your head of what's going on, but it's always a negative one. It's never a positive one. So you end up beating yourself up. And one of the big things was always, can you affect what's going on with the issue that's happening at that point? If you can, great, you can try and deal with it. But if it's out of your hands and it's not achievable, don't worry about it. Um, so problems that were big for me that I was creating as big problems in my head, he taught me how to make them to be not problems, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah,
2: um,
1: and that was that was huge for me. Um, the feeling of not not feeling wanted, um, he gave me, he gave me confidence back in myself as well. I, w- I was just thinking, oh, no, you're a horrible person at times, and that the type of person that you are and the way you've become. But then I've, I've almost got like, it's interesting. Now I work with certain people or I see certain people. And when they see me, they're like, you look great. You sound great. And you people notice it in your body language and the way that you talk and the way that you are. Um, It's very difficult for me to, to describe what he's done for me. Um, but he's he's made me happier. Like he's made me, he's given me that content, contentment every day. Uh, listen, every day is not great. And it's something we talk about all the time is why do we wake up some days feeling great? And why do we wake up some some days feeling bad? The bad days are the ones when you used to wake up and you'd think, oh, the world's going to end. This is going to be the worst day of my life and things are going to get worse and worse and worse but he's taught me how to deal with them situations that, okay, some days are going to be shit, but try and make the best of them, try and, try and learn from them and and process them and get on with them. I've had tough days this week, but I get that period where I don't know whether you've been the same in the past, but you beat yourself up for not, not just an hour, but a a day, a week, a month. Whereas that was, that was was my life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I've had, I've had things this week that have been difficult and I'll think about them and they're gone in five minutes or they're gone in two minutes. Um, the other side of it where I knew I was getting better, which which was really interesting is, uh, well, there's there's been quite a few, but I go to bed now and I put my head on the pillow and there's not things racing through my mind. Mm. I sleep better than I've ever slept in my life um, because there's not a worry in my head. There's not a fear of anything that's going on that I can't control. Every situation pretty much is controllable to a certain extent. Now, as long as you feel that you're in control of those situations or you can in some way deal with that situation, then everything's fine. Mm. And um, there's just a a clarity in my head, um, Mm. which I, I can't really explain. But it's just a great, great feeling.
0: I think that's the biggest thing. Like people try and control uncontrollables. Yeah. The only thing you could control is essentially what you said there is your response to it. Yeah, like, and, that, and that's it. That and it then gives you complete control over the situation. I yeah. can't control how Mike responds. I can't control what you say on this podcast. All I can do is control my reaction to it. And I just want to unpick a few things that you said there. The first thing I want to take it all the way back to when you first started with Paul, uh, and again, give. Uh, I love Paul to be. I think Paul is absolutely fucking awesome. Um, what Paul did by talking, was freed you to talk. And this is what you're now doing because you're now talking freely and you're now creating the way for people to talk. So you don't yeah. realize that you're doing this, but just by you talking now openly, like you have done, you're going to be helping some people. Some people are like, fucking hell, so they're going to play it to their brothers or their sisters, wherever he needs it. So that's what Paul did for you. You're now paying it forward. And I'm now paying it forward with the podcast. That's why I yeah. do it. So anyone's yeah. listening to this, that's what you got to do. You've got to pay that forward. And then also then when you're talking about there, Stephen, about uh, these, these thoughts, the fact that now they come and it's kind of go. It's because we spoke about this on a previous episode. Like, thoughts only have power when we give them the emotion if you yeah. can just notice them coming in and just watch them go they can't control you the problem is you sp- i spoke about as it it's like you've got your thoughts and you and the problem is when you're so intertwined you can't see reality because you're so cloudy in your own thoughts and all you've done there is you've separated yourself and you've yeah, got yeah. you back you're now you you're the best version of you and you can see yeah. the bullshit that you were made to think was you, you're not good enough, all this confidence, but you're now free again and you're now you. And honestly, I I love Paul. Paul is honestly absolutely incredible. Uh, And also another thing I want to pick up on there is like I always say, and you just hit the nail on the head there, everyone has bad days. It is impossible. Mm. I don't give a fuck who you are, how much money you have, how successful you claim to be. You will always have a bad day. It's all about trying to bring it down from a bad day to a bad hour, to a bad minute, to a bad few seconds. Correct. That is the aim. That's all we can do. Yeah. So I just wanted to summarize yeah. that there. Uh, Stephen, I'm very, very cautious of your time. So I just want to finish off with the final question, which I ask all my my, my guests. Um, what advice would you give to someone who feels stuck and out of control with their life?
1: See, th- this is a big thing. I, I often hear it at the moment. And what you'll, what you'll get from what I've said previously, or probably back this up, is it's important to talk now i get that to a certain degree there's no point in talking to the wrong person mm. yeah so if if you want to become a footballer go and speak to a footballer don't don't speak to dave on the street who knows fuck all about football but thinks he knows about it oh, every football if you want of- to become <laughs> it, but if you want to become an entrepreneur go and sit in a room with an entrepreneur who's done it who's got a background on it who's been through it who knows the pros and cons of what to do you don't ask for advice from someone who's not been and done what they are doing my daughter wants to be a swimmer i'll put her in touch with swimming coaches or successful swimmers i won't put her in touch with myself <laughs> because i'm not a swimmer i don't know what it takes to become a professional swimmer to become an olympian that's not my forte but the big thing for me was when i when i needed to speak to someone I knew Paul had been through it. So I'm going to go and speak to a man who's been through it and who's come out the other side and is very happy and is very content in his life. And I was jealous of that. That was the big thing for me was to, to go and speak to someone who's been through it. And it, it's so important that people don't get the, or get the right message and not the wrong message. Speak to someone. No, speak to the right person Go and speak to someone who's been there, understands it, and knows what it's like to be uh, to go through it. It was interesting. Um, there's been a couple of players recently who've come out and said that they're suffering from depression. Yeah, I think there was the uh, the lad who uh, you're going to have to uh, help me out here. I think he was a um, Peterborough striker. And, uh, I'm not
0: sure his name. But I know who, I think I know who you mean.
1: Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll, get I, Mike, we'll get Mikey to pee across the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I got in contact with him when he when he posted on Instagram uh, about his depression and how he was suffering. And I just said to him, listen, if you need to chat, if you want to. I've been through it myself very recently. I told him everything that I've been through uh, just over a message. Mm. And he, he just said, uh, I've got people around me and things like that. So I thought, OK, well, I've tried. I've tried to reach out and, and speak to him. Um I messaged Stephen Colker who was going through depression himself and, and things like that just to to say like how pleased I am that things are going well for him and I think you get like a sense of do you know what I've been through this so not what these guys have gone through they need a pat on the back yep. to realise like what you've done is incredible to get out the other side or if you do need help that I'm I'm, I'm quite happy to meet up and chat with you I always speak to to players who I know who've come out the game recently, and just say if you fancy meeting up for a chat, just let me know. And whether that's gonna happen or not, I don't know. Or whether in four years, three months, whatever it might be, they might go, he's been through that. He knows what it's like. This is why I think it's important for me to do the podcasts. Yes. Because obviously I'm yeah. doing this one with you and done one with, with Paul as well. Is people, I've not talked about this publicly no. properly yet. Um, because I, in all honesty I haven't had the confidence to because I wasn't comfortable with where I've been and what I've done um, but now I am um, I'm more than happy to speak about it and I think a lot of people will probably get in touch with me after it and think do you know what I'm so glad you spoke about it and help me talk to me about it
0: you've given me goosebumps you've given me goosebumps <laughs> because the, the thing is Stephen you automatically have authority you have authority. So by you coming out and talking like you are now and being open about it and being so confident in the fact that you can help people, you yeah. do not understand the impact that you're going to have. Like someone yeah. like me, I'm a nobody that's trying to help people. And again, I get amazing guests on like you guys. And again, I'm working way up through the ranks. You are already there. So by you doing what you're doing, you have absolutely no fucking idea the people that you're going to help. And when you start talking about like you are doing now and it becomes public because some of these people may not have responded to you because they're like, well, what the fuck does he know? Or, oh, he just wants to jump on this bandwagon. When they hear what you've gone through, they're like, yeah. yeah. Shit. And you, you're going to help so many fucking people because I do this all the time. I'll see people post off on Instagram. I may not even know them because I've got a virtual yeah. assistant that follows people for me and be like, I'm really struggling. I'll just pop a message saying, listen, I'm here mm. if you want to talk. And yeah, yeah. They're like, "What the fuck do you know?" I'm like, "Well, actually, here's my podcast. Actually, here's yeah. my story. Like, I'm here." Sometimes they don't yeah. respond, but at least you can do that. And I think what you're doing now, actually reaching out to these players,
1: yeah. is incredible. Well, I think that says the a thing purpose. is, though, it's it's not just players, though. It's 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 anyone in life. I don't know. Yes. I, and I understand there's there's a certain side of it where yes, like when I talked before about speak to the right person who's being in that industry, and I know it'll be football players and things like that, but coming out of any sports yeah. is, is similar as well. It, it was interesting when you, when you spoke then about people not knowing what you've been through. Um, I went out a while ago, uh, to watch, uh, it was last season. Liverpool were playing Man United at Man United when the game got called off. Yes. And, um, I went out for a f- few drinks with my mates to watch it. And, um, I was in a bar with, with a lad, uh, with uh, probably six or seven of me mates. So it was like an outside seating area. And, um, we were just chatting and one of the lads who I hadn't seen for a long time was like, how are you? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. So i have been in a bit of a shit place I've been in therapy for a, like a while. And he like looked at me like, what? And it was the first time I'd really spoke about it. And I went, yeah, yeah. I nearly killed myself a while ago. And he like looked at me and he, you know, like, did you just say that? And he was like, I can, I didn't realize that. And I was like, well, I haven't told you. That's why I'm telling you now. Yeah. And he was like, Oh, right. Um, and suddenly, though, he was like questioning me. Why? Where did you get to? What had happened? Where did you been? And suddenly he wanted to know everything about it and mm. how I got out of it and where I've been. Because I think everyone, to a certain degree, wonders if they've been depressed or are depressed. Mm. They don't get it. No. Uh, they don't understand it. I think a, a lot of people don't want to admit it. No. I don't think I wanted to admit it uh, because it's like, oh, I'm a sportsman. I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm super fit. I i've got to be mentally strong um but it was interesting just to get that response off him was fucking hell that's great i'm i'm really pleased for you
0: i think that's the interesting thing with this i say this a lot every single person on this planet has mental health so it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to suffer with it it's like cardiovascular health bone health brain health but people think they're invincible to it but actually absolutely wouldn't it be a lot better now that your mate if he ever does start to slip be like Oh, S- Stephen's told me about this. Right, right. Mm. And this one time I do this podcast, I'm trying to stop yeah. people go down that rabbit hole that mean you went down, you get the bottom of that, that thing. And once you're there, that's, it's hard to say, but when you're in the darkest of days, if I'd gone back and time traveled, I'd have told myself to go fuck myself because I didn't want to hear it. Yeah, of course. But once once you when you went way down, you can be stopped. And when you just slightly get out, someone can grab you by the collar and pull you out the other side, which is exactly what Paul did to you. As soon as you're yeah. ready to hear it, Paul was there. Buckle up, motherfucker! I'm coming. He grabbed you out. And if people can have more tools to help them when they're sliding down to stop them hitting rock bottom, that means we all win. And yeah. that's exactly it. So what you just did with your mate,
1: I think okay. one of the biggest things is is like. Paul spoke about it before many a time. I, don't, I can't remember whether he mentioned it on your podcast. I'm sure he did. But it's like we, we go to the gym, we train, we look at nutrition and everything like that, but we don't train our brain. No. We don't take care of the most important part of our body and we don't try and figure it out. We just expect it to work and to do what it's programmed to do. But to try and reprogram it in a, in a certain way and learn techniques as to how to do that and understand it, is massively important. I think it's even more apparent now in in Insta, in, in the world of social oh, media. Fuck
0: yes. It yeah.
1: drives me insane. All these people that are on things, and I, I look at Instagram, and I can tell who's depressed. I can tell straight away yes. who's depressed and who's yep. not happy, and who's in a relationship that they don't want to be in or yes. that they're not happy. And and I, I honestly sit back and I just look at it and think, I, I know what you're doing. Mm oh because I'm, i've I've done it myself, and I know the triggers of it all and I, and it's funny when you when you sit down and speak to people and there's trigger words and sayings that they say, and you just go yep you're lying yep oh you're absolutely lying yeah and i- i just sometimes i'll I'll try and help them because this is the thing as well since i've been working with with Paul. Um, I could find it funny calling him Paul because he's Kofi. Called- <laughs> to me.
0: I said that yeah. on the podcast. I didn't know his name was Paul. That, that made yeah. me laugh.
1: So um, he, um, he, he said to me, what you'll find out is the more that we do this work, the more you'll want to help people. And I find myself doing it. But then there's times where I find myself just pulling back going, be too much hard work that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. like. Because the it's, thing is, that, but some people, as you said, they don't want to be helped. Because they don't
0: know. Again, like, like I said, if someone come into you, when you, uh, so after you played that that, that game, uh, where you got through to the final, and someone, your mate turned around to you and went, I think you're a bit depressed, mate. Like, I can help you with that. You'd have been like, what the fuck are you on about your dickhead? Like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. I'll slap out of it. And that's the thing, especially people trying to convince themselves they're happy. And as you said, you can see it all over social media. Like if you're really that happy on holiday with your missus, you're not posting photos all the time saying, I'm madly lovely you are, blah, blah, blah. You just enjoy the fucking holiday. Like yeah. you're not yeah. trying to show the world how happy you are. You just are right. happy. You're just yeah. happy. Yeah. And yeah.
1: it's it's bizarre. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the other things I'd, I'd say to people to take away from this is, and, um, It's something that we work on a lot and it's it's sort of the the mirror effect. So when you get angry or you get upset, it's often a reflection of something. Or if someone gets angry with you and you you bounce back on it, it's often a reflection of something you're suppressing. Yes. And it's so important that you realize that. And it is a sign of there's something not quite right. Um, and it's something that I've I've learned along the way. So even now there's times where I get frustrated. And um, I get angry, and then I sit back and look at it and go, "I do that so i 'm getting angry with someone for doing something, but it 's because it reminds me of what I do and why I get frustrated and why i'm it 's something that I 've suppressed and done. Every day' is brilliant because you just you learn more about yourself and little things and little tricks of how to deal with them, um, but that 's something that I think is vitally important for people that they understand when they get angry with someone. It's a self-reflection.
0: 100%. 100%. That's self-awareness. And again, a comment, is Paul said that, but uh, or it might, have been, uh, it might have been Andy Cope, actually, about the fact of we walk around with ourselves 24 365, but we don't actually know ourselves. Yeah. Once you actually get to know yourself, it gives you the freedom to understand what's going on. And that sounds exactly yeah, what you have done it now. It's brilliant, it's yeah, yeah. absolutely brilliant. But again, trying to articulate yeah. this to people, it's hard. And and you've yeah, actually said course. it beautifully. But, but how you articulate you articulated that again? It's beautiful. Uh, and this yeah. thing, this I said this to to to, to Mikey and uh, Matt, the gym owner. I knew that you had more more to you. I, I, I and <laughs> like don't be talk with, with Paul because he's your mate and obviously what he wants to the podcast. The stuff that you know now, I just wanted to get out of this podcast that you fucking know your shit. Like you read because Mike is behind me now, nodding his head. The stuff you're saying, mate, is fucking spot on. And you articulate it in such a calm, assertive manner, and it's you genuinely give a fuck. Like oh yeah. And that's the thing.
1: I, I honestly I find this fascinating. I find it fascinating to think how low I've been in with I'm not even joking. Within a a three-week period, I remember walking into my brother and my sister-in-law's house, and my sister-in-law, she likes this. She loves, like, whenever I talk to to Paul, she's like, have you learned what you talked (laughs) about? Things like that. But she's a real, like, deep thinker about it as well, whereas my brother quite naturally gets it, which some people do as well. Some people naturally work things out very well. And um, even after three weeks of working with, with Paul, like, she went, you look and sound brilliant. Like you just you you you're back and probably even better. And what the 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 biggest way I worked out that I was feeling better was the sleep. And do you ever like walk around with a podcast on or music on, but you never listen to it?
0: Yes, because you're not present, you're too busy yeah. in your own head. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I listen to things now. I listen to songs. I listen to podcasts. And my mind's not elsewhere. My mind's not racing, disappearing. And uh, something that really pleased Paul as well was I've been learning Spanish for the last sort of 16 months, 15 months. My my recall was terrible, really slow, because I'm sat in a lesson, having a lesson, but my mind's on everything else going on in, in my life, bouncing around it. Whereas now I sit in a Spanish lesson and I am present in that lesson, And my recall is like boom, 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 so much quicker because my mind's clear. Mm. And I remember doing these lessons like a month on, thinking, wow, I'm really getting good at Spanish here. And the more I thought about it, the more I was thinking, no, I'm present in the lessons. Whereas when I was having lessons beforehand, I'd sit there and think, fuck, I've got to do that after. I've got to do this after. Then she wants that. Then I've got to do this. I've got to sort that out. I've got to do this. And I'm in the lesson thinking like that. Whereas now I just go, like even in this this thing now, like our podcast here, I'd be thinking what's going to happen later, what I've got to do tomorrow, what someone said to me last week. It's so, still playing on my mind. I don't. Everything's clear. Everything's so relaxed and calm is that I'm just at ease with myself. Because this so is life. At, this is life. Yeah, yeah. You are now yeah, yeah. living
0: life before you weren't. And again, I actually miss it out when we spoke about your career and how you spoke so negatively about it. It's probably because you weren't present and actually grateful no. in what you were doing. You were worried about the next game, the next thing the contract, whatever it was, the manager, fuck Correct. you. When actually, if you were present at every opportunity, you'd have completely thought differently about your career and everything yeah. like that. And I actually wrote down my yeah, notes. Yeah. I, just didn't, so I didn't, I didn't <sighs> Honestly, absolutely brilliant. Uh, that, that is, like Mikey behind me is like, it, mate, this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. Where can people find out more information about you? What is your Instagram handle?
1: Um, it's Stephen Warnock three, I think it is on Instagram. But to be honest with you, I've um, I've pretty much come off it. Bad enough.
0: Don't blame you, mate. I don't blame you. If I didn't need it for a business, I wouldn't have it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there's certain things that I use it for. But it was interesting. I sat around, I sat down with one of my uh, my bosses at a, a big company not so long ago, and I, I asked him what he thought of uh, social media and whether he thought I needed it. Um to it's this cliche at the moment as well. Build a profile, build a, a brand and things like that. I, I couldn't be asked. Mm. So I said that to him. I said, listen, I, I, I can't be asked doing that. And he went, you don't have to. He went, do your job and it'll and it'll take care of itself. We don't need you to do stuff like that. And do you know what it took a massive weight off my shoulders because there are things again that we we tell ourselves a story. Well, I need to be big on social media. I need the, all these followers. So companies go, oh, he's well-followed. Well, it's all right if you're well-followed by people, but if you talk absolute bollocks, you're not going to get the work. 100%. With anything? Come on and do the, co- Yeah, with, with any job. Absolutely. It's not even it, it's come it, on
0: and do your job. It's, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not even in, in, in a job. It's in life. Who yeah, gives a fucking yeah. shit if you've got six-pack abs and you are absolutely stunning, but you can't hold a fucking conversation? What the fuck? Like, and you can post all these stories, but actually if you're on a date with someone, you can't say it. Mate, I'm so glad you, this is a fucking great point to finish on. I'm so glad you said that because when it comes to anything, personal training, being a good footballer, it doesn't matter how many followers you got. it It doesn't matter who sponsors you. If you are not good at your job, it doesn't matter. Be good at your job and people will find you. Same with this podcast right now. Just come on this podcast. I'm trying to do the best job I possibly fucking can. That's it. That's all I can do. And that's what you should do with Mm -hmm. any opportunity. Be present and be the best version of you at any moment in time. That's the fucking whole thing in this podcast, become the best version of you. And you've literally articulated how to do that. Be present in the moment and control Mm -hmm. what you can control. And that is you. Absolutely. Yeah. Stephen, this has been amazing.
1: Thank you so much thank for you your very time. Much.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: No, thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, thanks mate. Take well. care. Cheers. Thank you.